So it seems like there's a lot of symbolism when people like transition out of out of like a certain life. They quit a job or they quit drinking or they have kids. And there's always just like some symbolism that we use to like denote a change in our life. And as your book is winding down, you talk about one of the funniest things that I've ever heard used as like a symbolism for your life. And you, um, well, how do I put this lightly? You removed your breast implants as like a symbolism for change. Something I just was not expecting. Your book is very funny, but like at that point, after having spent like three or four hours with you, (laughs) I was dying laughing at this. Like, can you tell me about how you decided that would be like your transition into this a life away from MLMs. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think as you shed those layers of like just the fake conversation, the fake friendships, the fake social media posts, the fake, and I think part of it also is getting, you know, older and feeling more comfortable in your own skin. Like I wasn't that 20 year old anymore who made that decision. Right. And I think to me, it was just like, I want to go forward in the world as the person that I actually am. And again, no shade to anyone who gets plastic surgery or whatever. It's just for me, I thought like it was kind of the last part of like my alignment to who I really was. That's really cool. It is yeah. It is a book full of just like really interesting tidbits, but also that is like very, it's very personal in both a like deeply psychological way, but also just very personal as in, you know, just like how you experience and how you think about the social issues of these topics. And I I thought that was fascinating. So thank you, Emily, so much for coming onto the podcast. This is the Schizophrenic Reads podcast where we talk about nonfiction. Uh, Today I have with me Emily Lynn Paulson. You are the author of two books, Hey Hun, which we'll be talking about today, and a previous book, Highlight Real, which is about finding sobriety and a recovery beyond a filtered life, which I as I read your book more, I was like, I really need to check this one out. So you're also a speaker and the founder of the Sober Mom Squad, uh, which is a network of sober moms, kind of. And that's been a really interesting thing to learn more about. So Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, I'm so excited to talk to you. We're going to be talking about Hey Hun today. The uh, subtitle for this is really good. It really sticks with you. It's Sales, Sisterhood, Supremacy, and Other Lies Behind Multi-Level Marketing. I am curious, did you pick the subtitle for this book or was this one pitched by the publisher? So it's funny because, you know, the word supremacy has been, I mean, all people who are like, yes, write about MLMs. I can't wait to read about this. And then I put supremacy in the title and they're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) And so I think it's a misunderstanding of like what supremacy means. And I had to do a lot of learning. I love alliteration. And so I thought it would be like sales, sisterhood, serums, supplements, something like that. And my publisher's like, and my editor's like supremacy, you had to put supremacy in there. And I was like, are you sure? You know, cause I'm white. Am I supposed to say that? They're like, yes, you are the one who needs to talk about this. You know, <laughs> white people are the ones who uphold white supremacy and you need to dismantle it. So it took a lot of learning on my part. And then by the time I was like, you know, writing more into it, researching more, I'm like, yes, this has to be in the title. Uh, but it's funny how many people really are, you know, kind of clutch their pearls at, at that word. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, well, I can imagine there was a marketing meeting about it and being like, well, like, how do we go about this? How are we going to like make this, you know, how will this lead into sales and what demographics does this change for us? Which is so fascinating. I would love to know, this is just kind of an open-ended question. I would love to know kind of just about your publishing journey and how how that was for you. Because what you have is a a book on obviously a, a cultural topic that a lot of people are fascinated with. So I imagine it wasn't too hard to pitch this book and get a publisher to go for it. And you chose a nonprofit publisher. Yeah. So how did, how was that? How was that journey for you? How did it go? And I just love to know more about that. Yeah. So I got the, actually a friend in the MLM who also was, you know, wanting to leave. And I were talking about after my first book was written, she's like, your next book has to be about MLMs. And I was like, you know, I, I kind of got my wheels turning and I, I would write down notes. And like the first thing I came up with was chapter names. Like if I did this, you know, I wanted to do the chapter names. Right. And I thought honestly, at first that I would write it under like a pseudonym or like anonymously. Cause I'm like, 
I knew that would it would be like Hun backlash, right? Wow, that would that would be like a completely different book than totally what, different book. Yeah, well, I mean, and, yeah. And as I, I I kind of started writing and and working on a book proposal, it was very much just the story. It it really wasn't a lot of the polemic and research. And I kind of thought that's how it would be. And then when I started working with an editor on the book proposal, it, it kind of became a different book. It was at first I was going to call it the Cult at Home, <laughs> and. Uh, like, eh, That's a good title. Yeah. And then, you know, Hey Hun, I was like, it has to be Hey Hun, just because that's, you know, what people say. And then of course the subtitle came later, but it was interesting because as it was being pitched to publishers, the feedback was, I would love to read this, you know, from editors was like, I'd love to read this. However, I don't think the publishing house will accept it because it's a potential litigious topic. Mm-hmm. Talking about MLMs, which are huge corporations. And yeah. so I actually had some, you know, at first I was like, oh, am I going to even be able to get a book deal? I might even have to, I might have to self-publish. And thankfully, my friend and editor, and she was working on building this publishing house, um, which Row House is actually, it's a for-profit publisher, but it's okay. a woman-owned publishing house. And they're all about telling stories that matter, that amplify stories from people who are, you know, have been oppressed. And, you know, at first I was like, well, I'm a white woman. Do I really fit in here? And they're like, you're telling the story of how this system upholds white supremacy. And I'm like, oh, so as I did more research, then it was just a perfect fit. And honestly, going with Row House allowed me to tell the story much more honestly, much Mm -hmm. more deeply, much more deeply than I even would have. I went to research more things. I had more of an understanding even than I did when I was in it, when I, when I finished the book. Um, it really was, it, it was great because I think had I gone with another publisher who maybe wanted to make it a little easier read for people, not offensive, it wouldn't have been the same book. Is that also why you chose to rename or I guess not name the MLM that you worked for? You call it rejuvenate. Is that right? Yeah. In the book, yeah. uh, which doesn't exist. This is just yeah. a, a pseudonym for, I mean, it's a placeholder for where you actually worked, but it's also just a placeholder for the genre of business, it it stands as a larger point. Was the legality part of the issue with this or was it just wanting to shift focus away from any one particular entity? Yeah, it was more shifting focus. I mean, of course I don't want to be sued, but you know, anything (laughs) I was telling was my personal story and facts that anybody can research if they want to. Right. So there there really wasn't a worry there that the particular company that would be a problem, but I wanted to be as honest as possible. So I wanted to be able to tell stories and, you know, not implicate people. So by, you know, having a pseudonym for a company, I can do that. And the the bigger reason really is that it doesn't matter, right? It's any insert, any MLM name here. And these things apply And, and also to skirt around people being able to say, oh, well, it was just that company. She's just writing about that company. Cause I'm not, it's, it's the whole industry. Yeah, which I think is a really interesting thing. I, I guess like we should probably just say before we get super far into it is you were doing MLM work and you rose through the ranks, which is kind of the premise of this book is is climbing the corporate ladder in such sense. And you were with this company for how long exactly was it? Uh, six and a half years. Wow. Yeah. And just, I think as you go along, you get kind of, jaded or a little bit despondent with what you were doing and how it was impacting your life. And there's a really interesting kind of, in a a fiction book, it would just be the denouement. It's like kind of this like little break from the, the action of the book. And you have a moment where the conflicts that you're experiencing internally result in you becoming sober, which is actually the result of your first book, which you wrote while still participating in the MLM. I am curious and I haven't read it and I I really wish I could have picked it up before this, but I read this book as soon as it came out and I was like, we got to talk like immediately. So I haven't had a chance to go check out Highlight Reel. But looking back on that book now, would there be things that you wish you could amend? Would there be maybe a tonal shift or anything like that now that you've you've exited the multi-level marketing world? Like, is there anything that you wish you could have changed about that, that first book? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I, again, I was in the MLM when I wrote it and me writing it was really, I knew I was on my way out. 
Mm. I knew I was exiting. So I didn't write negatively about it. You know, I included my experience in it um, in a very roundabout way of, you know, this business I was involved in led to me doing public speaking. This business I was involved in led to me meeting people who helped me with my sobriety and also escalated a addiction that was already there. Right. So I talked about it in a very factual way, but yet reading back now, I can see how I was still kind of in that insular world, even though I was exiting. So I'm definitely, had I not gotten sober, obviously I, I wouldn't have been able to leave the MLM, like among many other things. So it was definitely part of the process. I do think, and I, and I, you know, talk about this in the book a little bit is, is like the focus on how important you are the focus on, and granted, I think my story is important. I think everyone's story is important, but I think in an MLM, you really feel like the spotlight is on you. And uh, that was one of the open-ended questions I had in the book. It's like, gosh, would I have even written the first book had Mm. I not felt like I was so important? What's like an inflated confidence to feel you have something to share, you know, like it's just, it's a driving force. And I think it's also that longing is probably why people get into MLMs in the first place. You talk a lot about people wanting to get into them to like, what is the kind of the the thing that's said is like, you control your own hours, you control your own, you know, like you are a small business owner is kind of the, what you just call a lie in the book. <laughs> it's, it's like the drawing force of how people get into it. But I think it's a directive. I think it's it's people like looking for an in into a professional world or just like a, a sisterhood that they're like longing for. And you come out really strong against a lot of these myths, which I thought was fascinating was over and over again, MLMs either draw you in or keep you in there. One of the things that I would love to hear you talk about a little bit, because you reference it almost in every chapter, is the sunk cost fallacy. And Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to kind of just explain what that is, but then also how it relates to the field that you got into. Yes. So the sunk cost fallacy is where you've put so much of something into something. So for example, there are people who put so much time into a relationship, right? And, you know, so they, they're like, oh, I can't get divorced because gosh, I've spent so much time with this person or I can't sell this car because I keep throwing money into it, right? You think I've already put so much time, money, resources, I can't leave now. That's that's kind of, and the fallacy is that most people don't actually put X, Y, Z together and and understand like, oh, actually I could. Like there, there's nothing keeping me from leaving the relationship, from selling the car, from doing all these things. Yeah. And in an MLM, it's weaponized because you are told the entire time, this is up to you. You can make it if you work hard enough, just hustle. You're, you're in charge of your own destiny. So if you're not making it, then it's an automatic you know, if you're spending too much money, it's like, well, you've got to spend money to make money, you know, or, oh, this is just the rent on your business or gosh, you know, this is just more personal development that will help you later. And and so no matter what, if it's time, money, you know, you will be told somehow that it's worth it, even if you know, it's not. Yeah. Well, and it just, it keeps the, it keeps people there for longer because I think something you get into is like the psychology and your own personal psychology, but also broadly of people wanting to get out of this business and wanting to get out for personal reasons, financial reasons. And there's a gamut of reasons why people would want to get out. And part of that is there is, it's so hard to get prepared to do that. And your book is kind of I think processing this, but also giving people like the room to process this. And so often reading this book, I had this weird realization of like, who is the audience that you're writing this for? Because there's so many moments where it's like, it's a very kind and empathetic letter to people in the MLM world. But also at the same time, it is written for people that don't understand the MLM world. It is written for people that are just interested in, I guess, kind of more like the... uh, I've always called the true crime adjacent world of just like kind of phenomenal stories and and where they lead. So I'd be curious where you think, or when you were writing it, like who was, who was kind of your ideal audience during this time period? Yeah. I mean, initially, uh, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of people, former MLM members. And so my initial thought was, I want this to be for people who realize they're not alone, who realize that this is not your fault 
that you are not the one who didn't level up or whatever. It's the system, right? But then as I got writing, I was like, this is something I wish I would have known or heard when I was in. And this is something I wish I would have known or heard before I got in. So I really, as I got writing it, I, I really wanted to write it for someone who had no idea what MLMs were for someone who maybe had had a friend and purchased from them and thought they were being supportive. Someone who's been in and doesn't take it too seriously. Someone who's really indoctrinated and someone who's left or someone who wants to leave. And so I thought of like basically anyone. And as I was having, you know, my editor read it, I had a sensitivity reader, you know, I had all these people read it beforehand with different levels of knowledge. And I wanted it to land with all of them. And that seems like a hard thing to do, but I feel like MLMs touch everybody in some way, whether they know it or not. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's what makes your book so easy to just like widely recommend to like every single person that I talk to is just because I think we've all had our own interactions with MLMs, especially it's not something that you get in too heavily with your research, but the geographical ways in which MLMs are dispersed. And you were in the West Coast in Seattle uh, while this book is taking place. But also you allude to like the fact that Utah and specifically like Salt Lake City are just like the hub of MLMs. And they have just spread over the past couple of decades, like wildfire, especially in like the Midwest where I'm at. And specifically in religiously or politically conservative areas, I found this really fascinating that this is the area that I grew up in. I have my own stories with MLMs. And I think just like, as I read it, I was like, oh, everyone kind of has their interaction. And I I wondered, this is not, <laughs> this is not where your book is primarily focused. It's not researched in that way. But I would love to know during the research process, or just thinking about the book over the last couple of years that you've been working on it and stuff, your book is very much centered on sisterhood and women MLMs. However, I have my own weird stories of men and MLMs, and they are widely not as successful. Um, and I'm curious if you think there's just the gender differences have a lot to do with, um, I think, just broadly, like men's inability to hold relationships in some sense, because that's that's how your story happened. That's how so many women's story happened in the MLM world is through genuine relationships that turn into transactionary relationships. And in men's stuff, all the times that I have been sent the equivalent of a hey hun, which is like a what's up dude text, it's led to me just being like, I don't want to talk to this person. I have no no interest in going to this energy drink party of <laughs> trying to get sold something. It's like you can see the telegraph from miles away. And I think there is a gender difference there. And I'd love to know if you have thought about it or read about it or just any thoughts on the topic. A hundred percent. I mean, the, the way female relationships work and that need for a village and the fact that women don't have a village like they used to, you know, 50 years ago, hundred years ago, like keep going back. Like women had more of a village that's completely weaponized. And, you know, it's interesting because Amway was really what started it all. Amway was, was what all is, what all MLMs model themselves after and Amway was really focused on the male head of household. The male, the man was the head of the business, but the woman, because they met, went into it together, was the one who made the relationships happen. And then this splintered off into then Tupperware and, you know, Mary Kay and Avon, and it was home parties. It was like, okay, the housewives are going to have parties and have their friends over in their neighborhoods. And it turned into companies realizing, oh, wow, women know how to get people together. Women are the ones who can spread this around and women are the ones who want the relationships like that. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I, I've seen this meme floating around of like crypto is an, a pyramid scheme for men. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm like, that totally lands, but you're right. You know, it's, it's 75 to 80% women in MLMs, but the irony is the people at the top, the corporate. Oh, for sure. White men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so when, again, you're like selling this, you're helping a woman, you know, you're helping female empowerment. Well, really, you're just making more white CEOs rich in corporations. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's um, the money always is flowing up and it's, it's never as apparent with MLMs. Mm -hmm. It is a, there could be a textbook written about like the financial 
I think, implications. And your book does such a good job of doing research into, you know, what percentage of people are even, you know, making a profit, which is almost none. I mean, it's what was, I don't know if you remember the exact statistic, but it's like 98% or something. People 99.7. That's across all MLMs that don't turn a profit, which surprises some people because they're like, well, I know so-and-so got a paycheck. I know. So, but you have to, it's a pay to play system. So you have to buy into the system. So you're automatically like $500, $800 in debt. The people Mm -hmm. who ever earn that amount back is uh, less than 1%. I have to say the most cynical part of the reading journey for me when it came to like the pure economics of this, of your situation, but of everyone's kind of situation in this, is when you talk about getting the car, because the car has always been the Mary Kay pink car is the flagship of what you think of when you think of MLMs in like a historical in a historical way, but also we still think about that. You see a pink Cadillac and you're like, wow, they're like, they're doing real good business. And you describe how uh, the economics of getting that car are not at all what people assume. And I would love for you to tell people about that. And I don't, I hope it doesn't spoil this for the reader, but it is, it was mind blowing to me. And uh, if, by this point in the conversation, you haven't already ordered the book, just do it. You can pause here, come back. But I would love for you to kind of spoil that for everyone because yeah. it, it was horrifying. Yeah, the free car is not free. Um, and nothing in the, you know, any incentive, any bonus, any trip, anything that, that the things that are used on social media as aspirational reasons for you to join, none of those things are free. They're all on the back, first of all, of unpaid labor. The rep is taxed heavily on them. It's included as income. It's, you know, there's so many things about it, but, but yeah, the car's not free. So basically you qualify by hitting whatever metric that company has. It's usually a title or a sales volume. So say I, my, my volume of sales for the company is uh, $150,000 or something like that. That's not my sales. That's me and everybody in the pyramid. And that's not money I'm making. That's money the company's making. So I've made this much money for the company and my uplines and I I qualify for the car. So I have to hold this title for however many months. And once I do, I earn a free car. Well, what that entails is going to the dealership yourself, filling out the forms yourself, getting a lease or a purchase yourself on your own credit, putting down your own money for a down payment, title, registration, taxes, everything. You're buying your own car. You are buying your own car, the contract's for you, and the company then gives you a stipend. Well, that sounds lovely. Like, oh, well, see, so they're paying for it. No, they're <laughs> giving you a stipend, which never covers the car. It can be $250, $500, $1,000. But remember, these cars are, it's a Mercedes, a Lexus, the Cadillac. They are luxury cars and they have to be brand new and they are not cheap. So you have someone like me who qualifies for the car. Well, we already have a two-income household. You know, we are ready to upgrade our car anyway. For us, even paying for a car ourselves isn't that big of a stretch. But wow, on social media, (laughs) you're earning a free car. That's really cool. Well, really, I'm just getting a subsidized car that I'm still paying at least half of. And if I don't maintain the title, which 80% of people don't, then I'm on the hook for the whole thing. Well, and along with this... Uh, It was just, uh, I was just blown away reading this. And then you have to throw yourself a car party and the, the big bow that, you know, the, the car arrives, you know, you get the big bow on the car. You also just had to buy the big bow for yourself. (laughs) This is how you tell the story. And I was just, I was literally like walking in the woods. I I read the audio book and I was reading the book and kind of going back and forth a little bit. And I literally like stopped in the middle of the woods and was like a hand to head, just like, what is happening now? This is, this is absolutely wild. And I think it's just, it's so fascinating reading your story because I think for a lot of us on the outside that never got into MLMs, we just knew it was a grift. And then you get into the specifics and you're like, oh my God, like it, it goes so much deeper. And I think what your book is so good at is being kind of a public education into like, yeah, the tactics that they're going to sell you at, like one, they're psychologically implications into those things that they're not telling you about, but also it'll just ruin your life kind of. And it's, it's not putting it in a nice way, but like, that's just kind of how it is. And, uh, 
I think you do a good job of like letting people down nicely, uh, specifically people that have been in the MLMs. But I would, <laughs> I would like to ask you, part of the supremacy angle of this book is focused around the white supremacy, but there's always this kind of like the underlying part of that is the Protestant work ethic of just like work until you succeed. And the myths of the MLM are so abundant and so clear. And the Protestant work ethic is something I think like all of American society is reckoning with. Like, this is also a myth. It's it's like work hard and you will succeed. Isn't really like a true story in the American ethos anymore. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious while you were writing this and learning more about like the wider culture like how was how was like psychologically just like learning about these like grand economic schemes like how did you process this how was this how did you feel during like this whole i would guess is like just a vicious descent of some sorts of getting more into it yeah because you know you're uncovering so much and it's almost like well this is a dumpster fire do i want to jump in here i think you know capitalism and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and this all of the vernacular around prosperity gospel, right? The the almighty dollar and, and everything like, again, we are born into this country that was founded on capitalism and all these colonial things, right? That again, this American dream that actually doesn't exist, but at least in capitalism, that American dream, you're getting paid a wage, even if it's not a living wage, even if it sucks, you know, there's lots of things that could be improved there. In an MLM, it bastardizes all of those terrible things of capitalism. And then it's a meritocracy where not only are you doing these things and it's all up to you and pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but we're not going to pay you. It's all your unpaid labor and you're going to have to actually pay us and pay into the system. And we're going to blame you when you fail. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it was looking at myself and saying, wow, I really did believe that MLMs were like skirting around capitalism. Like I believed that if I could do this, you know, gosh, look, I did the things I was told and I made it. So these people can do the things they're told and and make it. And I didn't, I, I wasn't given any other data other than that. Right. And I also wasn't necessarily willing to look at it. And so looking at my own complicity in the system was a huge part of it, of how did I uphold this capitalism, this meritocracy, this white supremacy through my involvement? And also how can I educate people on how to not do that while still understanding we still live in this world? Well, I think like everyone's kind of reckoning with capitalism in their own way and in their own experiences with work, but also with just inflation and and life becoming more unaffordable and student loans just becoming insurmountable for so many people. And it is so funny because MLMs do tout themselves as kind of this branch off of capitalism, a, a way to kind of keep yourself safe or at least control more of your life, where really they are just like, they're capitalism on drugs in some sense. It's like the most heightened form of exploitation. And I think a lot of people are trying to understand how they are exploited in their normal job. You know, at Starbucks, the exploitation that you have is not being able to afford the coffee that you're producing. But in MLMs, the exploitation is is like celebrated. That's like the whole kind of premise to the story is like you are supposed to build these relationships in order to exploit the people on your what is called your downline. And it's a it's horrifying. And those are the things that, that's what's so ironic about it is those are the things that, again, these aspirational posts on social media are, look at me, I'm one of only a hundred people in the company who earned this thing, or here's convention and here's only 10 people who earned this thing. And instead of being, wait a minute, why did only 10 people earn it? If anyone can do this, shouldn't more people be up there? Instead of thinking that it's again, aspirational. It's wow. What do I need to do to get there? And again, it's all unpaid labor. Yeah. To kind of transition, I would love to talk, uh, both of me and you have probably in our own ways had to reckon with, I think, the influencer industry. And the influencer as a kind of genre of people is kind of one of the, like MLMs are one of the main ways in which we see influencers 
on social media. And you get into a little bit about how <laughs> companies like Facebook have had to really like process what they are doing to MLM markets. And they had to get rid of their like uh, live selling events and things like that. And how I'm just curious how you've seen from your time in MLMs to even where we're at today with people, I think, I think almost like publicly mocking MLMs in some capacity. Like we have the documentary uh, Lulu Rich, which I'd love to hear some impersonations of uh, later, but social media is just this open playing field for people's thoughts and opinions. And just, I'm curious how you've seen influencing change, like from your start in MLMs to like where you're at now with selling books and with uh, building your own kind of social media presence. Like what is, what is the transitionary periods of that felt like for you or been like? Yeah. So social media is like, I'm sure you feel this way. It's such a necessary evil, which I hate that it is a necessary evil. Absolutely. <laughs> I do love the connections I've made over social media. I love that the uh, um, ability, the ability to touch people around the world. Right. And also I hate it because I, I, you know, you have to show up, you have, it's created this list of obligations too. So I, I really have been good about trying to curate my own social media feed. So I see the things I want to see. I post the things I want to post and, you know, I filter set up so that people can't just come at me and, you know, whatever. But you know, it's interesting with an MLM because I think back in the day, like when Facebook first came about, again, it was kind of like, it's fine. Like you guys, you can post whatever you want and you saw your friends posting anything. And it was like, it was cool. And at that time you couldn't necessarily get everything and anything online. You, so, so if you had a friend posting about her great skincare, it was like, oh, cool. I'll try that. And and it's my friend and it'll show up at my door. Cool. Well, fast forward and you can get anything. I mean, I can set my phone down and talk about wanting something and it shows up on my Instagram feed and it's at my door. Like so much more availability of products. So the consumer landscape has changed. And again, the social media landscape has changed. So they're like, wait a minute, we want to do, we're not paying advertisers. We want to pay people. We want to do brand brand deals. And it's, it's done this weird thing where MLM women have tried to make themselves influencers, but also the people getting paid, you know, it's the company getting paid. It's not, you know, that, I guess that's the biggest difference. And when, when people compare themselves, people in MLMs are like, oh, I, I just, I, I'm an influencer. I just sell products for a commission. I recommend products and I get paid for them. Well, that's not true. You know, an actual like influencer, a brand influencer, they make a deal, they post their product and yeah, are there problems with influencers for sure, but that's it. It's a transaction. It's advertising. And with an MLM, it, it's not, it's you're, you're posting on social media. You're talking about a product. You are not getting paid for it unless you sell something. And when you do sell something, you're getting very little from it. Your upline's getting a lot. Their upline's getting a lot. The corporation again is the, is the one benefiting. So it's this interesting thing where I think there's been more consumer awareness around MLMs, but there's more consumer confusion of what an influencer is and what affiliate marketing is. And I think understanding who is getting paid for this when I buy this product, you know, if Carly, uh, you know, Carly Sue recommends some product from Sephora and I pay money, well, she might get a cut of it, but that's it. Like it's a one-on-one thing. If I buy something from doTERRA oils from this influencer, who's getting paid? She's getting a few cents. Her upline's getting money. So I think it's, it's, it's confused people more, but I think it's, it's also led people to understand like maybe where their money's going a little bit. Yeah. I don't even know if that's an answer, but I think consumer awareness is what is going to change the landscape of MLMs. No, because I think it's such an interesting thing. I think there's also, there's, there's so much needed in the way of influencers being honest about what the brand deals that they're taking are. And I think there's just so much disclosures that we need for consumers, but also from the influencers, because we ultimately have this idea of th- these very like lavish lifestyles and, and it's all, it's all Instagram perfect, you know, like, and that's kind of one of the things you talk about in your book that I loved was 
taking these pictures at your, uh, at these conferences and you're like, you're, you're so incredibly hungover or you're just absolutely exhausted for having like an incredibly busy schedule. And you're just like, yeah, I got to snap this picture with this product that you probably don't even care about. And you're like, got to post, got to write captions. And you're like, I could use, I want nothing more than to like go back to my hotel and sleep for like 48 hours, which I also have to think is probably how, a lot of us have viewed social media. I know for a fact that I, it, it's really cool. A video will do really well. I'll get a bunch of new followers. And literally like the next day, I'm like, I want to just like shut off social. Like I want to quit. Like I want to just be done posting. I just want to vanish into like silence. So I am kind of curious. This is not so much to do with the book, but I am curious if at any point during the writing process or having even the book out in the world, have you been like, yeah, I just want to shut it all down now. I want, like, I'm, I want to retire from the public life. So many times. And, and I think when you write, you know, and I talk about, obviously I talk about recovery and I talk about how alcohol is bad for you. And like, I talk about things that are not necessarily popular in the zeitgeist, right? Like people right, love right. wine, MLM, people love their MLMs. So I talk about things that automatically are going to get comments. So again, I've, I've, I have my comments restricted to people who follow me only like stuff like that so that it protects me from, from that. Um, but yes, I think, you know, it's hard when, when, you know, like I could have just left the MLM and never said anything. Right. And felt good, you know, pat myself on the back. Like, yeah, yeah. I did the right thing. Goodbye. Right, I did the right thing. But that wasn't n- enough. Like, I, I, and that's why I wrote the book. It's like to do a good thing, you know, and I write, I throw myself completely under the bus and how I was complicit in all these things and how I was predatory and how I was damaging to people. And because of that, then people are like, well, now you're profiting off a book. You're using this. And it's like, it's the misunderstandings that it's like, okay, that's what book publishing is. Like right, right. Writing is a job and you get paid for it. And like, if if I really wanted to make money, going into book publishing would not be the way, like authors don't make a lot of money. Like I'd hate to break it to you, but people don't write books because they want to be rich. It is right? not a get rich quick scheme. No, I would have stayed. And that's probably why there's not really that many book MLMs out there. I I think there is a couple of them that I have just seen crop up in the last couple of years, but they're trying anything and everything, honestly. I am curious because I want to get into kind of the like the relational aspects. Have you read Emily Hun's Influencer Industry? I have, yeah. Um, So a lot of this book talks about, and it's one of my favorite books of the year, and I'm going to have to reach out to Emily because I want to talk to her too, but influencer industry is kind of a reckoning with like how transactional we have made relationships in the social media era of like all of my followers, what they are to me is my ability to sell myself uh, for a future book deal or for a advertisement. Like what they mean is actually a monetary signifier of how valuable I am. And I think this comes into play in a really interesting probably in unique ways of MLMs where, you know, historically they were like, it was just who you knew in your own local community. And now it's expanded. And in the book, you talk about kind of, I forget what you gave her the name. Maybe it was Megan. That was like your downline. She was kind of a social media star in her own right. And it like became this great catch. Like you, you caught it, you caught a fish or you caught a big fish and social media, the transactionary nature of how we view people is really bastardized in some way. And we've talked about that a little bit. And I think now from the outside, when you see posts like that, like, does it, how do you feel like when you're, when you're just scrolling social media and you see specifically like the, you talk a lot about um, the MLMs need to like latch themselves onto tragedy in order to try and turn a profit. And like, is there just some, I think, deep-seated either a depression or is there kind of an anger, a righteous anger, of course, but how is it feeling like that you watch these completely false transactionary relationships just like continuing to exist, like left and right? It's interesting because I have a lot of empathy, understanding that I really believed a lot of these things for a really long time. And you're taught in an MLM to view people as, as numbers, 
you're taught, you know, it's just a numbers game. You're told that lots of times, you know, reach out, keep reaching out next person. You know, if they don't say yes, uh, whatever next, right. It's all about transaction. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned Emily Hunt's book, because when I read it, I was like, oh, I wish I'd had this one of writing because I totally would have referenced lots of, I'm like, oh, yep, yep. Like there's lots of things that I talked about in the book that I'm like, oh, I totally would have referenced this. But it is, um, again, you are taught to see people as what they can do for you mm. under the guise of what you can do for them. Oh. And, and so you're always, you're thinking like, well, it's not what I want from you. It's what I want for you. Yeah. And And you really do believe like, I believed to be true, like the sky is blue, that I was offering people a gift. And I didn't understand logically why everyone wouldn't want to do this when they saw how successful I was because I was ignoring and I was encouraged to ignore the actual statistics and math and, you know, reality around me. Um, It's just like the self-delusions that mm -hmm. make MLMs possible, I think. you, You are taught to be like a delusional optimist. You really are. That's encouraged. Which gets into one of the books that you did reference a lot in this book really well was Cultish by Amanda Montel. And uh, I think it's the final chapter of Amanda Montel's book or or one of the final chapters that talks about MLMs being a cult. And you also use the same language and you expand on it in your own ways and through your own story. How do you feel now having written this book, having left the community and especially like, I think just the, psychological exits that people talk about from like mainline cults from Nexium or from, you know, any of the, the bigger cults that we've kind of grown to, I think, tolerate in some sense in society, it is startling to get back into the real world and to like view things from the outside. First, do you view that cult is a good word for MLMs? And then also, do you think the cult, the exiting the cult thing, I, I mean, like, what did you learn from that process for yourself? Mm-hmm. Cult is definitely the right word. And commercial cult is the, the I think, what really encompasses it. Because, you know, again, it's when we think of cult, it's like, oh, everyone's in a tent and they're wearing white and they're, you know, they're like sacrificing a goat. Like, but it's this commercial cult. And it's like, oh, yeah, I can see that. And, and also just the different levels, which I love about cultish of, anything and everything can be culty. It's your involvement. And it's not always a bad thing. Like, Hey, you know, you love your, like your fitness CrossFit gym, like, cool. You guys want to have a little like group. What happens when you leave? They probably check up on you and wonder if you're okay. Like what happens if you leave an MLM? Well, they blacklist you. So (laughs) you lose all all your friends, lose all your friends. Um, So yes, I do think cult is the right word and leaving, you know, I think for me, because it happened over such a long period of time, it was a very slow exit. It, and I don't think this happens for people where they just wake up one day and they're like, oh, I don't like it. I'm gone. Um, it happens over such a long time that by the time I, I had to get to the point where I was so disgusted by my own behavior and my own involvement that I had, that I, that I fully quit and had no reservations about it at all. So I had lost people already. I had distanced myself already. And COVID helped with this because again, I wasn't in that insular world. I was at home able to see it from the outside. And I was separated from it enough to know like, this isn't good. So then by the time I was out, the confirmation was when then many people wouldn't talk to me anymore. It it was just confirmation. And sadly, that's something that drives a lot of people back in because Mm -hmm. they well, now I'm lonely again and I'm not making money and I'm whatever pain point they had to begin with. Well, that must have been the solution, you know? So I'm going to try it again, or I'm going to try a different one or whatever. So, yeah. You made your exit from your MLM. And then also around, I think around the same time, if I'm getting the timeline correct, uh, you probably watched the Lulu Rich documentary, uh, which is you were kind of more into the health and wellness. Lulu Rich is a little bit more into like clothing and fashion. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts to share about your watching experience with that. Obviously, having been someone that was successful in this world, what was it like to watch this thing? And especially because it was, when it came out, extremely popular. Talked about all across Twitter. I mean, people just laughing at it or, or, you know, just so many public discussions happening. How was it having been probably newly out of an MLM and watching, I guess, kind of a 
cultural touchstone in some way. Yeah. I was just recently out and it's so interesting because I had several people on my team who, you know, LuLaRoe came out and kind of came out of nowhere and lots of people joined it. And I had people who like I had done three-way calls with who decided to join LuLaRoe instead of the company I was with. And like, it was always just like a, mm. and so when they started to go under and I, and they did start to have problems and I was still in my MLM, it was like, well, good. Like take that. You chose the wrong company. Right. I remember thinking that like without realizing, oh, wait, I'm in the same thing. I'm totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's all the same. There's yeah. no real difference here. Totally. So when I watched it, I was expecting, I guess, just something, you know, really sensational and really, and what I heard was everything I was involved in. Mm. It was all the same. It was all the same thing. Was it cathartic in any sense to watch this or was it just like, oh, this sucks? Like It was, this like, it was just nodding my head the whole time. Like, yep, mm. yep, yep. Oh, those same platitudes, the same double speak, the same smoke and mirrors, like, yep, same, same, same. I got a I got a comment recently. Uh, I, I made the video in which I called you, and I'd, I'd be curious if you have any uh, lashback. But I called you a total fucking grifter in my video. Uh, I think you had a laugh at it. I hope you totally. Hope, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I had a comment that was exactly that. It was like, oh, I watched the Lulu Rich documentary. Like, do I need to read it? And I was like, yes, you absolutely like read this book because I you get so much more. Uh, there's so much depth that you have in reading this book that you don't get with a documentary, which the documentary follows a ton of different people. And yeah. with your book, we hear just your story and we get all of the stages. And it, and it's honestly kind of like the stages of grief, of like the acceptance of the anger, of the like processing all of this that's happening to you. Yeah. So this is to anyone that was like, oh, I, I watched the documentary on this topic. No, you still need to read the book. Absolutely. But I am curious, how was it hearing me? Because uh, I'm sure my video just like popped up for you. And then I'm just directly saying something kind of mean to your face. If that was, <laughs> I didn't know if you had a laugh at that at the moment or, or kind I of. I totally did. I totally did. And it, you know, it's funny because that I had to view myself as that person while I was writing it because that's who I was. Uh-huh. And so much, again, I, I learned so much in my own recovery of that shame that will keep you stuck in a place where you don't change and you don't talk about it. And, you know, I did lots of things in my addiction that I, you know, would have taken to my grave. Right. But talking about them and I'm realizing, you know what, that Emily, this Emily, those are different people. That's the same person. And this is what I knew then. This is what I know now. So these are the choices I can make now. And that whole, like the best apology has changed behavior is I can look back at that now and say, oh my gosh, when those Facebook memories pop up of those cringy messages I sent or whatever, I can laugh at that and have give grace to that person who thought that was good because I was a grifter and I thought I was doing a good thing. <laughs> so it, it it totally, if I didn't have that viewpoint, I couldn't have put this out in the world. It would have yeah. been too hard to confront. Well, which just makes me, I am so excited to read your sobriety journey. I, I have recently kind of, uh, become sober. I, I've been sober for about six months. It's not something I talk about like a ton, but I've just had some health problems and decided to quit drinking. And the sobriety journey is what led to this journey of, of leaving and exiting your MLM. Your book becomes so deeply personal when you get into your sobriety journey. And then it's kind of just a transition into looking at the rest of your life through that different lens. And I don't know. (laughs) I wish I had a question with that, but I really, it's just having that transition from how you started your journey to sobriety kind of being the key point to the rest of it was incredibly fascinating. So uh, that was so interesting. And and on my own sobriety journey, I'm excited to read your book. I am curious if you have any book recommendations for other people, like looking to get more into this topic, looking to get more into the psychology or cults in general or anything like that? What have been some books along your writing journey that really meant a lot to you? Yeah. So as far as like really good information, like textbooky information, Ponzonomics by Robert Robert Fitzpatrick is great because it talks about the whole history of how MLM started and why they're still uh, why they're still out there. Um, that's really, really interesting. Um, anything from Stephen Hassan, combating mind control, um, the cult of Trump, even though, you know, it's 
even if you don't want to read about politics, it, it really shows you how people get attached to anything, whether it's a doctrine, a policy, an MLM, a person, um, really interesting. And, and again, gives you that empathy of this. There's a reason that people go to these things because there's a lack of funding or support or whatever, belief, money, cultish. Again, you got to read cultish Amanda Montel. It's so good. Um, some other, you know, MLM survivors, again, uh, Sarah Edmondson from the Nexium cults. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really good. I'm not gonna be able to think of the name of it now, but Mike, Mike Rinder, uh, he wrote about leaving, um, Scientology and I can't think of the name now, but look him up. It's his book. It's amazing. There's a book called uncultured. That's great. And again, it's about, um, you know, like a religious cult and also she's on TikTok. The author of is is making some TikTok content. Yes. I'm trying to think like, I've read all of them. I've read all of the cult books. And of course, I'm not going (laughs) to think of the names of all of them right now. Um, There's one about leaving the Amish culture. Mm. I can't think of. I was growing Uh, up in like the Midwest, like literally 10 miles from the Amish. Pennsylvania. something I would would dive in. Really good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the there's one coming out now, and I can't. I just saw it on social media the other day. It was like, "I will join your cult." Is the name of it? <laughs> there's this blonde lady on the front, and it's like she like looks brainwashed. And anyway, that looks like it'll be really good. But you know, I, I think if you go to like cultish on you know bookshop or something, you can see other things that are recommended or uh, whatever. I've I've posted some stuff on my Instagram that I recommend. There's a lot out there, and I think as the interest grows, we'll, we'll see more of this. I mean, there isn't another book out there from someone who has left an MLM. Yeah, like so that I, I think there will be more. My one publishing insight is I think we're very ready to get a new, uh, you know, swarm of books about leaving mainline evangelical faith. I think a lot of the people that have detransitioned or they're called the ex-evangelical group, uh, this past weekend, the shiny, uh, shiny happy people people documentary just came out. And I feel like we're probably right at the starting age of when we're going to start getting a lot of people reckoning with how cult-like that the American evangelical church has been. I grew up in a a really bad uh, evangelical church and Christian school, and there are so many stories. And so I can't wait to read books that are going to probably be very similar to yours with processing that trauma and processing that mindset of who you were at those time periods and stuff. So no, your book is definitely, I think, on the early stages of people just reckoning with how much like psychological warfare there is driven from capitalism, driven from religion, driven from white supremacy. And uh, it'll be fascinating, but absolutely everyone, you need to check out Hey Hun. Uh, It is such a phenomenal read. And Emily, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, Where can people find you online? Yeah. Um, I'm Emily Lynn Paulson on basically every platform and you can find my book anywhere books are sold and please support your local small bookstore. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, This podcast is produced by Tone Support. For your podcasting means, go to tone.support. Thank you to my patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to support this podcast, keep it ad-free and get bonus content, please go to patreon.com slash schizoread. Thanks everyone for listening. 